when I you know, met Doug a few years ago when we came to Spokane, when I look at his family, when I look at his community, when I look how he ministers to his people in his church, when I look how he befriends a lot of you in here, Doug is a man that I could say, the dude loves people. Now, we all know that that can be difficult sometimes because sometimes we're hard to be loved personally, but Doug truly is that. So wherever Doug is, could you come on up here and give him a big hand, please? A man that loves God and loves people. That's truly you, buddy. Amen. I do have a couple oh. questions for you. That, um, holy smokes. Oh, we get the stool. Okay. I was waiting for the stools. Do we get a table, too? Where's my table? Okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> kind of far away there, buddy. Here, let's, let's get close, man. Um, I don't know if Pastor Frank's here, but... Um, <laughs> do you have a bottle of water? I, I, I'm going to need one. So Doug, um, Doug's a young man. He's like 35. He's been pastoring for like 23 years as a senior pastor. That's, that's pretty amazing. That's 12, yeah. Started at 12. <laughs> Doug, when you got saved, whenever that was, were you smoking pot that day? No, but I was smoking, drinking, and doing a lot of other stuff the night before. Yeah. How did you meet your lovely wife, Peggy? I met her in a church in Santa Ana, California called Eagle's Nest Christian Fellowship. Gary Greenwald was the pastor. She was part of a young adults group. And uh, she saw me and she was smitten. And uh, it's my... You were definitely smoking, buddy. It's all right. It's, it's legal now, you know. Yeah. In Washington, not in Washington. here. Yeah. Hey, how many kids do you have, and what are their names? And maybe one grandkid. Yeah, yeah. Come on, I have four children. Uh, my oldest is Stephen; he's uh, 28, and then uh, Sarah and Nathaniel and Josiah, and uh, Stephen and Tabitha, our son and daughter-in-law, just had our first grandchild five weeks ago. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. Baby Abigail. And she's the most beautiful, intelligent, wise, incredible <laughs> baby ever born in the history of humanity from Adam and Eve until now. And forever and ever, amen. And all the grandpas and grandmas said amen to that too. Yeah. All right, when you look back at your 23 years of being a senior leader, you and Peggy, um, what is one thing that you've learned in ministry that you would encourage everybody here today to keep doing? Hmm. One thing is a, is a lot to ask. I would say probably the thing that I come back to over and over again is how desperately needy for God I am, prayer. I mean, I, every year, um, kind of at the beginning of a new year, I always ask God, teach me to pray. Uh, I feel like I'm still a, a child, still a student learning to pray. So I would say, I, I feel like you can mess up a lot, you can make a lot of mistakes and do a lot of things wrong, but if you're a man or woman of prayer, and you learn uh, to know God, you get to know God, and you get to know his ways and his people um, through prayer, then you can, you know, cover a lot of those messes that you make, and so prayer. So what is one thing in those 23 years that you would encourage us not to do that you've learned? Um, I would say don't compare yourself. Probably the biggest lesson, the biggest struggle of my life, honestly, the biggest struggle has been comparison. 
And it's been that secret sin that a lot of us hide in our heart where we measure ourselves by ourselves. And, you know, each of us are created um, so amazingly individual and individually, uniquely, and uh, everybody is blended and put together in a way that um, is a masterpiece in God. And when we try to be something we're not, um, we really do kind of insult the maker. And so just be happy with who you are and uh, go for it in God. Be yourself, yeah. Let's welcome Doug. Amen. You know, I just want to say right as I begin that I'm nervous. And uh, if you had to follow uh, Pastor Frank last night, you'd be nervous too. Right? Come on. Right? And so uh, how many of you think Pastor Frank did an amazing job last night? Wow! You know, I'm just glad that uh, preaching isn't a performance or a preacher's pageant, aren't you? A lot of you are like, yeah, really glad, okay? Um, I'm going to follow Pastor Frank's lead this morning and use the notes in your book. Isn't that good? Uh, They're excellent. They'll give you much to teach and talk over with your own teams, but I I just want to say that I'm going to be doing something different, and you're receiving some notes right now that I've prepared myself. Uh, I think they will be in line with the spirit of why we're here. I think that they will capture the heart of what Pastor Frank wanted us to talk about. And so uh, I don't don't think I'll be going against anything that would have been in his heart. I think I'll be right on track with him this morning. Um, Before I get started, I just want to give a shout out to my lovely, amazing wife, Peggy, of 28 years. And she's right over here. I love you, hon. And then I'd also like you to uh, greet, if you would, all of our group from Moses Lake, Washington, Grace Harvest Church. If you're a GHC, raise your hand and give me a shout out, huh? Yeah, yeah. And then um, you're getting some notes passed out to you. And I'm going to start this morning. I got to scroll down through um, these notes here in front of me that uh, go on forever and ever. Okay, here we go. I want to start, uh, actually I want to start in prayer. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we come to you today in the name of Jesus, your son. And we thank you that we can stand here in his name through his blood. We can come as representatives, as ambassadors of his, and we can boldly come before your throne of grace and and ask for grace to help in the time of need. And Lord, this is the time of need. Uh, I think of when, when Paul spoke to Timothy and he said when he preached that he stood in the presence of God. He stood before you. And so, Lord, we ultimately understand that we are standing in your presence this morning and we're before an audience of one and we're not here to impress one another. We're here to glorify you and make you glorious, beautiful, majestic, and famous. And so, Lord, I ask you to anoint me, to grace me, to speak as I ought to. Help me to take the time I've been allotted and make the most of it. Lord, I pray that you would take this word and bring it home to each of our hearts in the stage, in the age that we're in, the time that we're in in life, I pray that it would hit the mark, that you'd anoint our ears to hear and anoint my mouth and heart to speak. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen. Three friends decided to go deer hunting together. Come on. Come on, I knew you'd like that. A lawyer, a doctor, and a preacher. And as they were along came a big buck, a beautiful big buck. And the three of them simultaneously shot at the buck. Immediately, the buck dropped to the ground and all three of them rushed up to see how big it actually was. Upon reaching it, they could not determine whose shot had actually killed the deer. 
As a heated debate ensued, with proclamations made by each man about his shooting prowess and his aim, a game warden came up and asked what the problem was. The doctor told him that they were debating about who had shot the buck. The game warden took a look at the buck, and within a few seconds, he said with much confidence, the preacher shot the buck. Can I get a witness? <laughs> they all wondered, how did you know that so quickly? And the game warden said, easy. The bullet went in one ear and out the other. Come on. You ever feel that way? Now, there's a lot more to that little story than it first strikes you with. This is the way many of us feel right now in our time. We feel like we have lost our voice within our culture to the other experts and professionals. We feel like we stand in this age, in this time, as pastors, as leaders, as Christians, in a culture that really doesn't want to hear what we have to say and has determined that many times we're irrelevant. And uh, we feel like that. We, this, this is the dilemma that we're facing, the loss of our voice. And what I want to do today is share some thoughts that I've had with you personally about how we can regain our voice in a culture that kind of just wants it to go in one ear and out the other. Or at very minimum is, is saying to us, we're fine with your preaching, we're fine with your works, sing your songs, do your sacraments, do your gig, but do it in that building and stay there and be quiet because we don't really care what you have to say. And I want to challenge us today that we still got the best thing going because we've got Jesus. Now, I want to start out today, before I get into any of my points, with what I'm going to call the do and teach approach to cultural transformation. And you'll be very familiar with this text, but Acts verse 1, as, as Luke is writing the intro to Theophilus in the very first chapter, very first verse of Acts chapter 1, he says this, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do. And I want to start with this simple principle. It's do and teach time within our culture for the church. Let me explain what I mean. We're living in a time when our voice, as I've said already, and our message has been largely lost within our culture, due in part to bad representation of that message in word and deed. Our moral failures, our angry and reactive tone, and the displacement of our position in society have brought us to a new day. Let us not turn and shout at the culture. Let's not look out there and point the finger. Let's be reminded that much of the reason that, we're where, the reason that we are where we're at today is because we have stood in front of a culture and we've said, you're wrong, we're right, and then we've fallen on our face right in front of them and then sought to justify it. You got quiet. It's the day of do first and then teach. Let us do first by contending. Let's contend for miracles. Let's contend for signs and wonders. And let us engage in good works. Let's be a doing church first and foremost. Amen? Amen. And then our doing will open the way for our teaching, 
are instructing and are persuading people with the powerful truth of the gospel of the kingdom. As C.H. Spurgeon said, you know, the Bible, the, the word of God, the gospel is like a lion in a cage. And you've heard this quote before, but you open up that cage and you let that lion go and it will do what lions do. And we know that we have a powerful message that once released has the ability to transform culture one heart and one mind at a time. Amen? We've heard this before. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I I really believe this is a key for us in our time. And it's kind of what I want to lay the foundation with. It's the time for doing and then teaching. And then Jesus will prepare the way for the gospel more effectively as we engage in that. Amen? So I want to take you through a number of points, and, and you know, I always tell people I, I'm a, a typical preacher. I over-prepare. I have too much to say today, and so um, I'm going to try to move through these as quickly as possible. Uh, we will not be done at 10. I just want to say that right up front. We got started a little later, so I've been given a little bit more time. I've been given an extra allotment of time, and if you'll give me that extra allotment of time and stay with me on it, we'll have a good time together, okay? Amen. Here's my first point today. Um, And it's this, it's simple. The church transforms culture by keeping Jesus and his kingdom central in word and deed. Amen? Oswald Chambers says the highest Christian love is not devotion to a work or to a cause, but to Jesus Christ himself. Amen? When I look in the Bible, one of the things that strikes me, especially in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, over and over again is this idea that Paul, Peter, all of the writers of the New Covenant had, they they focused everything that they had to say, whether it was behavior, cultural transformation, the proclamation of the gospel, how we live out our faith, all of it started with the person and the revelation of Jesus Christ. Everyone started with the idea that knowing him first and foremost will lead us to the other things that we need to accomplish. I think it's an interesting pattern when you look in the Bible, you look at the the book of Romans and Paul starts out, he makes this case, the the first several chapters he shows us that we stand guilty before a, a holy God, whether by law, by conscience, or by nature, we stand before God accused and he shows us that whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile, you stand before God. With, with no plea whatsoever. And then he shows us how the law leads us to the knowledge of sin. And then he shows us the beauty of the gospel. And by the eighth chapter, we're on the Mount Everest of the Bible. And we're gazing up at the wonder of the gospel. And we're going, wow, look at what God has done in Jesus Christ. And so he shows us all of this. And then he brings us to the point where he starts to talk to us about behavior. He begins to speak to us about behavior. We see the same pattern in Ephesians and Colossians. Ephesians, first three chapters, it's all about Jesus and his church and redemption and adoption and love and grace. And He just spends all the time making Jesus big and the work that he's done big for his church. And then he gets into behavior and how we should live out our life. Colossians, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He's number one. He's, everything in creation revolves around him and then behavior. This is how you live out And yet I see so often we get stuck on the behavior first. We get stuck on trying to get people to to do the right stuff. And what I'm saying to you is we need to look at Jesus again. And I I can't seem to get away from this message. I think the last three times I've spoken here, I end up talking about Jesus. And in my church, I just finished a series on Jesus. I can't seem to get unstuck from Jesus because he is altogether lovely. And he's the best and greatest thing that's ever happened to any of us. Amen. But he has a kingdom as well. He's the king of a kingdom. He came to bring a rule. 
He came to bring the order, the government, the life, the presence, the reality of God into our daily living. Amen? He presented himself, uh, Pastor, to this last night, Acts 1-3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. I'd love to have that series. Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus would spend so much time after his resurrection focusing on the kingdom of God? For the 40 days of his appearance after his resurrection, when he's getting ready to commission his church to go into the world and reach the nations of the world with the gospel, he preaches the kingdom. He was wanting to impress something into their hearts and into their minds, wanting to get something deeply into them. I want you to understand that you're to preach what the world's going to look like when God's in charge. I want you to concentrate your attention on that. That I have brought, come to bring a new rule. My resurrection inaugurated a new creation. I'm the last Adam. We have a new thing going. I've started a whole new gig. And my glory is going to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. So go out there and tell people that I died, I rose again, and I brought something new. And that something new is radical and will change lives. It will set addicts free. It will heal sick people. And it will cause those who are dead in trespasses and sins to come alive again. That's the gospel. That's powerful. In recent years, it seems like our public message has been clouded so much that Jesus and his kingdom have become a means to an end rather than the end itself. Many view preaching the gospel, faith, etc., as a way to a better life. And we know that when we follow Jesus, it is a better life. But that's not the point. The knowing of God through the person of Jesus. He was God incarnated. He is God incarnated. When we see him, we see the Father. He came to show us what God's like. I know you know this. I'm preaching to preachers, so please, please don't take it like I'm trying to tell you something you don't already know, okay? But you get my point. We want to see a world in which God's in charge and ruling through people who are becoming like Jesus. Remember, after he rose, he spent 40 days saying, Look at my kingdom, and here I am. Touch me. Check me out. See if I'm not who I said I was. I also think it's interesting that C.S. Lewis, you know, he had a lot, of, a lot of great insights. And in the screw tape letters, as screw tape and Wormwood, screw tape is the senior devil, and Wormwood's the, the, the new up-and-coming devil. Um, screw tape is instructing him about how to deceive men. And this is what he says. He has one assignment in particular. Wormwood has been assigned to, to deceive this one particular man. And this is what he says to him. He says, once you've made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing, provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, and crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and charity. He is ours. And the more religious on those terms, the more securely ours. I could show you a pretty cageful of them down here right now. What's his point? If he can get us distracted, going down tributaries away from the person in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, he's got us right where he wants us. There's no impact in preaching another gospel other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Number two, the church transforms culture by being countercultural, not anti-cultural. You see the difference? Countercultural, not anti-cultural. 
In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul goes to Athens, and you, you all know the story. He's at the Areopagus, Mars Hill, and he, he's up there getting, uh, waiting his opportunity to debate with the scholars, with the Stoics, with the Epicureans of his day. And he stands before them, and he starts his message to them by saying this, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. I went through and I, I read the rest of this particular presentation of, of the gospel to these intellectuals and something that struck me is I noticed that Paul didn't start out by attacking the pagans. He didn't start out by saying, you know, you're going to hell, that's your portion, and Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. And I'm not trying to get away from that, don't hear that. But he didn't start there. He didn't start there by yelling loudly, get right or get left, you're going to hell. Jesus is the only way. See, he understood something. They were at step one. And at step one, you don't give them the answer to step 10. You meet them where they are. Paul didn't start out with an anti-cultural mindset that insulted and attacked people's philosophies and gods. He recognized their religiousness and their altar to the unknown God as a way to introduce them to the true God. He used this bridge to preach the true God and tell them of the resurrection of Jesus. Let's live and demonstrate another culture rooted in the new creation kingdom of Jesus as our answer to the decaying culture of this present age. So he starts out and he recognizes them and he even goes on to quote their own poets. Think about that. We sing songs. In him we live and move and have our being. That's a Greek poet. That was a Greek pagan poet. That was a man that didn't even know God, and yet he recognized that there was a power, there was a, a, a presence behind all things. And he said, in him we live and move and have our being. Paul's quoting him. He's recognizing that even pagans, that even people of other religions and other philosophies and ideas have truth, that truth is universal, that truth is self-evident, that there's something in the human conscience or side of us, and all of us instinctively know there's a God. And so let us find ways to appeal to that and start to build bridges and get people over it so we can show them the resurrected Christ. Just saying. Number three, the church transforms culture by changing our language from us or them or us versus them to us for them. Amen? I want you to notice a few texts of Scripture. I, I love these three verses Romans 5, 6, 8, and 10. I want you to notice the constant theme. Verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? I, I'm blown away by these texts. When we were weak, when we were sinners, when we were enemies. What was Christ doing? Dying, giving his life, pouring himself out, laying his life down over and over again. And as we begin to look at what is the church's role, what's our role in the culture in front of us, we have to, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we or are we not to be Jesus on earth? Are we to model his nature and his character? 
Maybe instead of looking at the culture as our, of course, there's an enemy element, but as our enemy, we need to start asking ourselves, how can we, while people are still weak, while people are still sinners, and while people are still enemies, demonstrate a life that lays itself down for the benefit of the other, before they've ever done anything to get in our good graces? Am I, am I talking to anybody? Self-sacrificial living. You know, Jesus said you're going to go into all the world and be my witnesses, right? And we know, you know, you all are Greek scholars, right? Witness, martus, martyrs. You're to go out there and be my martyrs. And what did he mean by that? He, he wasn't just looking for a bunch of people to die. He was looking for people to live sacrificially. <laughs> I almost, I had in my notes earlier to live as the walking dead. And I thought, no, nah, that might not go over good. <laughs> I, I don't think that's what I want to do here, but. As we give our lives for the sake of others and we don't seek to save our lives, the power of God's grace is released. A lot of current Christian rhetoric is about our rights and saving our lives and fighting to take our country back. That's the rhetoric of self-preservation and not the language of Jesus in the gospel. There's a lot of talk about fighting to take back what belonged to us. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the people and everything contained in it belong to Him. Our call is not to get back to a false Christian utopia that never existed, but to lay our lives down for those who are without God and without hope in the world. Amen? Yeah, come on. We can let cultural transformation begin to take care of itself as we get about our business of impacting people a life at a time and a heart at a time and a mind at a time with the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. Number four, the church transforms culture by first listening and understanding and then persuading when possible. Listening and understanding and persuading when possible. Proverbs chapter 18 verse 2 says, a fool takes no understanding but only in expressing his opinion. Uh, could that be a theme verse for what's happening in our country right now? Look around. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding but only in expressing his opinion. Whew. Ouch. I just kicked myself, right? I mean, come on. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23 through 26. And I just want to share something about this text. When I was a young pastor, I was getting frustrated with people. Anybody ever been there? And I was getting mad. Stupid stuff people were doing. I was giving them good, sound counsel. They would look at me and smile and nod their head. Yes, pastor, walk out of the office and go do exactly the opposite of what I'd share with them. It was sound stuff. It was Bible. I'd give it to them, and they'd walk out. They'd do stupid stuff. Their lives would get, get messed up. They'd go exactly against what I'd counsel them to do. Their lives would get messed up, and then they'd be there waiting for me to pick up the pieces. And I remember I was reading Paul's epistles to Timothy one day, and I came to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23 through 26, and I felt like God gave me those beautiful pegs he gives you, those scripture references that you can hang stuff on, and from that moment on, they inform your future direction. Look at what 2 Timothy 2, 23 through 26 says. It says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Now, any servants of the Lord in here? Come on, I want you to personalize this now, right? Put yourself in the text. We're going to do some, some eisegesis right now. <laughs> We're going to put you in the text, right? We're going to privately interpret the Bible for your sake 
and my sake. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to the people he likes. To people that believe like him or her. To people in his church. To everyone. Able to teach. Look at this next part. Patiently enduring evil. What? (laughs) Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance. Now we see God work. When we've done our part, the works of God can happen. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's a great picture of our culture right now. We got a bunch of captured, snared people by the devil, and our job is laid out for us very practical. Number one, don't be quarrelsome. Years ago, I was uh, new in our community, and I was taking groups. I was, I was a youth pastor, and then I became an associate pastor. I'd take teams out every Friday night. We'd go to parks and bowling alleys, and later I took teams into the taverns of Moses Lake. Two by two, we'd go into taverns, bowling alleys, parks, and we would go out and you know, love people, preach the gospel. And, and I started my ministry pr- uh, street preaching and, and getting out there and mixing it up on the streets, and man, was I a knucklehead. Well, I learned so much, but it's okay. Jesus still used me. Isn't that the beautiful thing about us? Even when we do it all wrong, he, he still uses us. But I was out there one night, and there were some guys who were kind of gangbangers hanging out in this area, and I was bound and determined to be a bold preacher. So I went over, and I started lifting up my voice and preaching the gospel of Jesus, and getting all up in their face. I was up in this guy's face, and all of a sudden, whack, right across my face. The dude smacked me upside my head. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm like, yeah, you know, Jesus loves you, and you need to turn from your wicked way. Whack! <laughs> sorry, man. And I, I walked over to my car. This, this guy came over, and he goes, man, you, you need to back off. I walked over to my car. I, I opened the door. I got in, and I, I started to pray. You know, I'm thinking, I'm the man of God, and he just struck the man of God. So I'm praying, you know, I need Lord, Lord, have him. Don't strike him dead, Lord. Wanted to do the Moses intercession, you know. These people, don't kill them all and raise up a nation out of me, Lord. And as the weeks went by, um, well, let me tell you the rest of the story. So actually what happened was this other guy comes over and he goes, hey, man, we just found out you're a preacher. And my buddy feels really bad. He feels really bad for what happened, and, and, and he's sorry for it. But he grew up his whole life with his dad abusing him. And his dad used to scream and yell at him and then knock him down and beat him up and scream. And he learned to fight by fighting his own father. And he said when you were yelling in his face, he felt like his dad was yelling at him. And he feels bad for what he did. And, of course, you know what that did, just here's an unbeliever teaching me about Jesus. The gospel is coming my way now. And I realized as I was thinking about that story that this is a lot like what the church looks like to our world right now. We're getting up on everybody's grill and we're yelling.
and condemning. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying there isn't a place for truth and righteousness. Please don't take what I'm saying too far. But listen, our starting point can't be, stop it. You're bad. You're sinners. You're evil. Our starting point has to be to not be quarrelsome. Be kind to everyone. Able to teach. Patiently endure evil. Boy, that's not happening. We're being persecuted. We don't even know what persecution is. Are you kidding me? I hear that. Now, now listen, I, I know we're heading in a certain direction. I know culture is moving a certain way. But I'll tell you, it's not a testimony to the culture. When they hear us over here going, you're picking on us. It doesn't help our cause. Jesus didn't do it. The apostles didn't do it. Just saying. Correct your opponents with gentleness. And then God is released to grant repentance, the knowledge of the truth, a coming to their senses, and escape from the devil's power. You see that process? Paul tells Timothy, you do this, you do this, you do this. If, if you'll respond this way, I may work this way. Does that help anybody? Number five, the church transforms culture through love. Duh, right? I mean, I don't mean to be so obvious. I know a number of these points are obvious, but cross love. I did a series recently in our church on cross love. And, I, and you know, I made the point that the, the cross is the, a beautiful picture of love because I wish I could draw it. It starts vertical, it starts from heaven, and it moves to us, right? So the cross comes down to us. And what happens to a person impacted by the power of the cross? It comes to us, it impacts us, it changes us. We experience the love of God, the pursuit of God. God chased us. He was first mover. He was initiator. He pursued us for years and years. All of us, he did in my life at least. He did in your life too, right? And what can I do? I respond. So then that, that vertical line goes back up to God, and I respond. That's called worship. That's called adoration. That's called loyalty and covenant love. It moves forward, but then it comes down again from God. It comes down again, and as it comes down again, it moves outward. It hits our hearts, and it moves outward, and it goes over here to our neighbor and our spouse. Martin Luther said, you can't love your enemy outside your front door if you can't learn to love your enemy within your front door, right? Sometimes it's that way. Not in my house, but some of you. Right, so then it moves this way, and then it, it comes across, and it moves this way to our enemies. And we see this beautiful love that started from above, that came down, touched us, moved back up to God, and then moved out to our neighbors and our enemies. That's cross love. And that's what we're called to do, right? And it's impossible love. It's love that must be empowered by the Spirit. It's love that responds to being loved. We've been impacted. We've been rocked. I mean, if you really, really know that you're loved, what can you do but love? Do you know you're loved? So we love one another. We love our neighbors. We love our enemies. I mean, can I just read what Jesus said about loving our enemies? Let's assess ourselves. Luke 6, 27, 28. Look at this. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. That's a high call. That's an impossible call. 
But that's what we're called to. Right? Not to hate back, not to get mad back. We want to impact our culture. We got to be different. That's what they're expecting. You get punched in the mouth, you punch somebody back in the mouth, right? No. Jesus showed us a different way. Now, many of you probably know the story of Telemachus. And, you know, uh, I will say this right off the bat. Some of the story could be legend. We don't know how accurate it was. But Telemachus was an Asian monk who journeyed to Rome sometime around January 1st, A.D. 404. He was in prayer, and he felt prompted by God to go to Rome. He'd never been there. He was an Asiatic monk who was way outside of Rome. And he was caught up in the crowd as he came into the city. The crowd was surging into the city. And he found his way in the crowd into the Colosseum during a time of a Roman festival, the marking of a new year. And as he was ushered into the stadium, he was confronted with the horrific spectacle of the gladiatorial battle going on right in front of his eyes. He had heard of this blood sport, but upon seeing it himself, he was overwhelmed with a need to intervene and do something. So he made his way down to the front of the amphitheater, and he shouted in front of all the crowd to the gladiators fighting down on the bottom, uh, on the um, arena floor. In the name of Christ, stop. Nobody heard him. So he yelled again, in the name of Christ, stop. And people started to notice him. Finally, he jumped onto the floor of the arena. He rushed into the fray of two gladiators in the midst of a heated battle. And what happened next is up for debate. But as Telemachus shouted, in the name of Christ, stop. In the name of Christ, stop. The crowd became angry and agitated. And at some point, either the emperor commanded him to be stoned to death or the gladiators grabbed a sword and ran him through. But he fell there and died and bled out right on the bottom of the arena floor. Either way, it had a profound impact and effect upon all those who were in attendance. The crowd was stunned and started to lose its appetite for the games. And the emperor shortly thereafter issued an edict to end the gladiatorial games forever. It is said that the last event ever held was on January 1st, 404 AD. He gave his life and preserve the life of many. Wow, what a different picture, what a different view. Number six, are you still with me? The church transforms culture by suffering graciously. That was a great lead into this one, by suffering graciously. How many of you signed up for suffering? Might I say something? I think that churches like ours, with faith background, kingdom background, power background, I think we have a really terrible, horrible theology of suffering. And I think we need to look at it. We're going to have to start addressing it. We're going to have to start having real talks about it. And, and we got to get over this idea that somehow we're in this new faith zone, the power to not suffer. Um, the greatest Christians in history suffered. And they had more faith than most of us had, and they had more faith in their pinky than we do in our whole body, right? We've got to recapture a theology of suffering. Look at 1 Peter 2, 19 through 20, 23 says this, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin or are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example <laughs> so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
1 Peter chapter 3, 19 and then 13 through 17. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. We love to quote that one but with gentleness and respect, but it's in the midst and it's in the context of suffering graciously. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. That's Bible. But we're afraid to talk about it. Mark 15, 39, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way, notice that, he breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the son of God. When we survey the history of God's people, one thing that stands out over and over is the powerful and transformative way in which our family has suffered. Many testimonies bear witness to the way suffering and martyrdom has had a life-changing effect upon those who have observed it. There are times in history that the ranks of the church swelled specifically because of the way that God's people suffered graciously. It seems that we may need to rediscover a rich theology of suffering in our time again. Now, I understand we're reactive to a middle-aged, dark-age idea that somehow, you know, going and beating ourselves and doing those things to us, living an ascetic lifestyle, um, um, forcing suffering upon ourselves was a good and redemptive thing. I disagree with that. That's wrong. But let's be honest and the history of the church, and right now all around our world in places that some of you in this room go, our brothers and sisters are losing their goods, losing their jobs, being separated from one another, being thrown into prison, being tortured, and they're dying as martyrs. And we are an arrogant people if we begin to think for one minute that somehow we are separate from that and it may not come our way. Just saying. Number seven, I'm almost done. You still with me? Okay, number seven, the church transforms culture by working together in unity. John 17, 21 and 23 says that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world, notice, the world may believe, I know you guys know this, but the world may believe that you've sent me. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna step on some more toes here. In this age of marketing, competition, and consumer-driven Christianity, our overall impact upon our culture will be much better served if we can truly value and love the overall body of Christ and learn to work together to impact our cities. Where we can genuinely, not just in our rhetoric, not just in our work, to our other brothers and sisters, the pastor in our towns and our communities say, you know, we're on the same team, we're with you, praise God, and then be intentional about competing against one another for the religious marketplace that exists to produce a better product so that we might win more. Something wrong with that way of thinking. I'm afraid that, you know, the, the marketing age has crept into our minds and it, it's so much a part of us because we've been marketed to from the time we came out of the womb. We've been told by television, by radio and everything around us that we're unhappy, that we're discontent, that we need more. And we, we take that picture, we take that idea and we bring it over into the church world. And if we're not careful, we begin to see ourselves in our communities as competitors with one another. And that does not glorify God. There's one church in a city with with many meeting places, and God loves that church. He loves the churches in your community just as much as he loves yours. 
Just saying. I know I'm preaching to the choir here. You know, we went, uh, we went on a sabbatical last year, and we were gone for two and a half months, and we visited nine churches over 11 Sundays. And it was intentional. And all over the Northwest, four in our own community and churches everywhere. And we went as guests. We went as visitors. And I went with my notepad. And I, oh, I have to tell you, come on, let's be honest. I, I had to do so much casting down in my mind of a critical spirit. Because we're really good at critiquing. I am, I'm an expert at it. I'll tell you what, you hang around me, you'll find out something about me. I, I'm, I'm far too critical. I'm always assessing stuff. I'm always measuring stuff. I'm always checking stuff out. And I have to fight my mind. And so we're going around to these churches and, you know, we're coming in the door and I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to catch the experience. How are we greeted? What's it like? What's the preaching like? What's the music like? What's the atmosphere? What's the tone? And I'm telling you, we went to a few churches where I don't think we existed. We walked in and nobody really noticed us. I remember one church we went to, we walked in, we sat in the service, a couple people smiled and nodded, that was it. We walked out of that service and nobody said goodbye to us as we left, we got in our car and we drove and I was like, wow. Now they were really having a good time with each other. All kinds of little groups hanging around, talking to each other, but I, we just walked right past them. <laughs> Guest, you've been waiting for me. But I'm going to tell you something. See, that's me. There's the critic. You just saw it right there, right? But we came away from that experience. And I remember I, I sat in the car after one of the churches we'd visited uh, with Peggy and we're, we're debriefing over this experience. First thing I have to say, it was incredibly awkward to visit lots of different churches. And I'm a fairly outgoing person. So I started thinking about people that are introverts or don't like crowds or people that come into our churches, and man, I was just like feeling all kinds of compassion for them. I was practically weeping for them. Deep intercession, a burden, I was crying, wailing, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> None of that happened. Okay. So I'm sitting in the car with Peggy, and we're talking, and I said, you know, it just struck me. It is such an arrogant thing for me or us to ever think that our group, our movement, our church has some kind of corner on the expression of the kingdom of God and what the body of Christ looks like in the eyes of God. That beautiful church with banners, right? And it, it, it just amazed me. I found myself falling in love with the body of Christ all over again, noticing her beauty. And her beauty was different than the beauty I was used to looking at. Some of the church's expressions were completely different. But I felt Christ. I was aware of Jesus. I was aware of the Holy Spirit in those places. And some of them weren't charismatic. They weren't Pentecostal and they weren't tongue talkers, but they were still my brothers and my sisters. They were my people. I just want to remind you that we're called in, in our cities. If we're going to transform culture, I'll tell you, something that will rock our culture is when they look at the church and they go, wow, you guys really love each other. And that takes me to my last point. The two are going to go together, and that is the church transforms culture by serving our cities and cultures. And I know you all know this again, but Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. You know, because we're Protestants, because we're grace people, because we are justified by grace, or by, how, what's it, by grace through faith alone? Grace through faith, faith through grace alone. Yeah, you know what I mean. 
got it all mixed up in my head right now. It didn't come out right. But because we're grace people, we, we, you know, we're, we're afraid of the, those two words, good works. But see, good works, we know this, but good works are an expression of a heart rocked by grace, right? If grace has come to you and changed you, you can't, you can't help but do good stuff. Right? You just want to help your neighbor. You want to love your neighbor. It, it comes down to us from here. It returns to God in worship, but it also returns to God in that other form of worship we call service, and service is to people, right? And so we, we serve people. And I, I just want to share with you a few personal time for a few more personal stories before we finish. Here we go. I'm talking really fast. Can you tell? Okay, here we go. We can serve our cities in unity with other churches. Now, I want to tell you the story of what we did in our town with uh, uh, an organization called Serve Moses Lake. So years ago, we began to recognize we had a lot of needy people coming to Moses Lake, and they, they, would, they would land in our city on their way to somewhere else, and, and they'd want bus tickets, they'd want a night in a motel, they'd want food, they'd want lighting, whatever, whatever they needed in their life at that moment, or they just were in our city and they had needs. But like many of you, we were all busy pastors. People would come through our doors and and it'd be like, you know, oh, we don't know what to do. And you're trying to discern, you know, is this just a user? Is this the 10th church they've been at? And you're asking questions that are really invasive. And you're asking questions that put a person on the defense. And you feel like you can't really spend time with them. You can't spend time ministering to them. You got poles here and there. And, and we just recognize that most of the time we were throwing money at people. That's all we were doing, just throwing money at people. And we began to talk as a ministerial association. And we are a close ministerial association. We really genuinely love each other. We hang out. We spend time. We have friendships. And um, many of the pastors in our town have been there a long time, and they're all, they're, a number of them are building dynamic, great churches. And so um, we started to talk, and, and we decided to go to Wenatchee. We'd heard about a ministry in Wenatchee. We visited it. We checked it. We, checked. we came back, and we decided to launch a ministry called Serve Moses Lake. And Serve Moses Lake would have a, a clearinghouse, we would actually staff a person uh, that would be uh, uh, an individual that would be in this clearinghouse with a support staff, and uh, each of us would contribute to that person, and they would assess the needs, they would pray with the people, they would connect them to whatever, uh, whatever way they needed to fulfill the needs, so they would send them back to local churches, and each of our local churches would play a part in that process. Some of us would put them in motel rooms, some of us would feed them, some of, them, some of us would, would take care of other needs in their life, medical bills or whatever, but they were, they were being assessed and they were being um, run through a process that genuinely met their need. And now, all of our church, well, not all of them, a number of our churches have volunteer staff at Serve Moses Lake. And um, people go down and, and, and they spend time in the intake process and we're able to genuinely meet that need. And it came out of the fact that we recognized we're one church in our city. We're not doing a very good job of taking care of the poor and we need to do a better job. God help us. And he gave us a vision and we did it together, not just as an individual church. I'm not saying you need to do that. I'm saying this is what we did because of a conviction and so what, what's happened since then is we work in coordination with a number of churches. We serve by offering after-school programs, like tutoring, Bible clubs, volunteer, teachers' aids. My wife heads up an outreach to an elementary school in our town, and, and it, the impact she's had there is profound. Recently, a, a thank you card was sent to the church to her on behalf of what she was doing, and it ended up in my office, and I opened it up, and it's signed by all the teachers and staff. Thank you so much for the goodies you brought and the way, you know, basically the way that you continue to show us you care. It was powerful. Um, we have 
gifts and goodies that are provided for, for teachers by our life groups. Our Hiles recently did a, a thing where they got together and they um, put together what was necessary so Peggy could take it to the school. The teachers, the, the staff, we, we pray for them, we support them, service projects, back-to-school backpacks full of school supplies. We do a, a thing every year, um, a back-to-school event. All the churches in our town, or a number of the churches in our town, have adopted each of the schools in our community. So we've, all the schools have been adopted now. Is that cool or what? Elementary, high school, middle school, all of them have been adopted. And at the beginning of the year, all, we do a big kickoff event. We call it the school event. We got backpacks. We're, we're blessing them with school supplies. We have haircuts. Some of our, our beauticians, what do you call them now? Yeah, okay. So they came in and cut hair and, and took it at the school. They go to the school and meet the need there. And we're adopting needy families in the school. And then recently we did something else that was really cool. We've been doing this now for four years. We call it a day of listening. We gather at a church. We take a 9 o'clock to 3 o'clock time, and from 9 until noon, different agencies from our community come in, DSHS, the high school superintendent, uh, Grant County Prevention and Recovery, Grant County Mental Health, Youth Dynamics and Outreach to Young People that are unchurched, uh, the Most Lake High School superintendent, the Most Lake High School principal in the past. All these different agencies come in, and they sit with us, and for three hours, they tell us their story. And we as pastors and leaders just listen. And they tell us, this is what we're challenged with. These are our struggles. Many of them are believers. They said, this is how you can pray for us. And we get the heartbeat of what's going on out there and the people that are in the trenches. And then we always ask the question, what can we do to partner with you? It's powerful. And then we take from, we have lunch, and then from one to three, we pray. We pray for our city. We pray for those leaders. We pray for the needs. And we ask God, what would you have us to do? And then uh, uh, not long ago, we had what we call a Serve Our City Sunday. And I'm just throwing these out as ideas. You do what God calls you to do. And don't compare. Remember what I said in the beginning? Don't compare. It's a bummer, okay? It'll just mess you up. So don't do that. But Serve Our City Sunday, we had a Sunday where we brought um, four um, ministries that we support. Crossroads Pregnancy Resource Center, Youth Dynamics, Serve Moses Lake, and Longview Elementary School Outreach, my wife representing them. And we brought all of them up on the platform. Pastor Raul, Raul, my associate pastor, Raul, raise your hand. This is Pastor Raul. He's an awesome guy, yeah? So he sat with them on the platform in chairs, and they sat on the platform, and all four of them were there. And he interviewed them about what their agencies do, the vision, how they minister to our city. And, uh, and then at the end, how can we help you? What can we do? And then they set up booths, tables in the foyer afterward. And afterward, people went out and we encouraged them, sign up, be a volunteer, get out there in your city and make a difference. Now, as we asked them about their mission and how we could support them, our people, you could just tell people began to go, I had never realized that we were engaged with them, that we were working with them, that we support them every month financially. We support them with volunteers. And they get the opportunity to see that we can bring the presence of Jesus and the presence of his kingdom to troubled youth, moms in crisis pregnancies, the poor, the needy in our city, children, youth, teachers, and staff within our local schools. It's really, really a powerful time. And the last couple of things. You still with me? Thank you for enduring to the end. You shall be saved. <laughs> Think about the churches in our region. I, I, I just loved seeing the updates from Life Church Walla Walla a few months ago when you guys did your big give. They do an event called the Big Give, and they gave away cars, bicycles, and all kinds of stuff. They impacted their city. It was in the newspaper, front page, 
front, something like that. It was in the, all over the newspaper. It's incredible. I think about what this church is doing in this community, all the outreach they do, the way that they've, um, they've partnered over the years with the mayor, and, and now that you guys have got this first responders room, what a great idea. Our next building, we're going to change it. We're going to have a first responders room. We want to have a place for people to come hang out. We're going to copy that from you, okay? Is that okay? Can we steal that? Okay, good. Yeah, you stole it. Okay, good. See, we, that's, a, well, that's what we do. We steal from one another. Faith Community Church, where's Jess Slusher at? Where's my buddy Jess? Jess, where are you at? Jess, right? You know, Jess was, was involved in the city uh, and on the city council, and he's been involved in the city for years. All the people in Quincy know Jess Slusher. And I think of a number of you, I, I know that, uh, was it two or three years ago, Bob, you shared how you guys had adopted a school, and the day that you went in there and you sat down with the principal, and they had a need they couldn't meet out of their budget, and you wrote them a check from the church and gave it to them, and she's just like, wow. See, that's, that's the church in action. You want to talk about transforming culture? That's how we do it, baby, Amen. Every year we gather our educators just before the school year starts. We, we acknowledge them. We pray over them. And we send them out and commission them. You are the servants of the Lord, ambassadors to Christ. Go back into your schools. And you know, we, we've got a lot of educators in our church. We have a superintendent. We have, um, we have a high school, or, excuse me, a middle school principal. We've got a number of teachers. And here's the thing that strikes me. In our city, there are believers all over the public education system all through the first responders there's believers there's god's people in strategic places how can we get behind them and support them amen and that is my last point the saints in the seats the influence in the city how can we get behind the people that sit in our churches and say to them we value what you're doing you're making a huge impact you're the marketplace ministers, you're the educational ministers, you're the law enforcement ministers, and we want to back you. There is no such thing as sacred and secular. Jesus into this in-flesh world. He got right down here where we live and move and have our being, amen. He worked in our setting, and he brought forth to the people of his time and his age the life of God right where they lived. How can we get behind them? How can we support them? Let's give our saints in the seats honor Let's preach and teach that honor and value for the people who lead in our cities. Amen? That's what we're going to do. I'd like you to stand with me. Thank you for the extra time, Pastor Bob. By the way, Frank, just in case you're wondering, we started really late, so I got up here really late, and so I'm just finishing, and I did it, and I did it in my time allotted. Thank you very much. I just want you to know that. I just want you to know. I don't want to get in trouble after this. I may anyway, but I just want you to know, okay? Can I pray for you? Let's lift holy hands to the Lord right now. Can we do that? Father, I thank you for your beautiful people. I thank you for the opportunity that we've had to be in your word together and to talk about cultural transformation. And now, Lord, help us to not compare, help us to not uh, try, to, try to just do what somebody else is doing, but to capture your mind, capture your will, discern what you're saying to us in this moment, in this hour, in this time, in our place and in our space. Lord, speak to us. Show us what you would have us to do we love you, Father. We want to make a difference in our... Anoint us now and grace us and commission us for it. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen.